Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partner for the month, and that's Wahoo. As a market leader in road cycling, Wahoo are relatively new to the mountain bike world, but they are serious about getting involved. They're already supporting top athletes like Tiny Seagrave, Danny Hart, Wim Masters, Brendan Fairclough, all the specialised factory riders, Loic Bruni, and today's guest, Rab Waddell, along with many others too. Wahoo were kind enough to support my training for the EWS 100 in the Tweed Valley, and since November last year, I've been using Wahoo's products and found them intuitive, robust, and a great addition to my training. Their GPS watch, the Element Rival, provides you with everything you need for tracking your training right there on your wrist. With customizable profiles for each activity, it's your perfect companion for riding, gym sessions, indoor training, and much more. If you want a GPS computer to mount on your bike, then you've got the Element Bolt or the Roam to choose from. I've been using the Bolt, which is the smaller of the two. It has fully customizable data screens on a super easy to read display, and it connects to your phone for super simple setup. I also have a Wahoo Kicker Smart Trainer, which has been invaluable for targeted interval sessions, allowing me to really take my training up a notch. Pair the Kicker with Wahoo X, their one-stop shop for training and virtual racing platforms, and you never know, you might even start to enjoy some indoor training. All of those pair with the awesome Wahoo Ticker Heart Rate Strap, which is super comfortable to wear and gives you the most accurate heart rate data for all your training. You can check out all that Wahoo have to offer over at wahoofitness.com. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. If you want to help support the show, then you can grab yourself some merch over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Issue two of our print project, Downtime EP, is now available and getting awesome feedback from those of you who've got a copy. Packed full of great writing and amazing photography for mountain biking's best, it takes some of the topics and guests from the podcast and puts them into something beautiful to read and cherish. You can get your copy or an annual subscription over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at downtimepodcast. All right, today I'm joined by Rab Waddell. Rab has recently returned to high-level professional competition thanks to the support from Wahoo. And you can follow his progress in their video series, Old Enough to Know Better, which you can find on Wahoo's YouTube channel. The series really resonated with me being a rider on the other side of his 30s, and I'm guessing it may well do for many of you too. I'll stick a link to that in the show notes for you so it's easy to find. Rab is a talented, multidisciplined mountain biker who came up through the ranks of cross-country racing to reach World Cup level. Along the way, there have been numerous ups and downs with overtraining and bouts of depression that have led Rab to question himself and to step away from racing. We sat down for a chat at the Tweed Valley EWS where Rab was racing the insanely tough e-bike event. Rab's open and honest approach to what has been a challenging career so far was refreshing and shows just how hard it can be to make it in our sport. It also shows that you can come back from low points in your life and Rab offers some insight into how he did that. Rab also shares some wisdom on overtraining and how to fuel events that I hope you'll find really useful. So without further ado, here's Rab Waddell. Rab Waddell, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Lovely sunny day here in Scotland. How are you? Very well. Yeah. Um, enjoying the... Uh Enjoying the vibes at, uh, in the Tweed Valley. Yeah, it's mega to be here. Yeah, it's been pretty special this week. Let's um, let's wind the clock back and we'll start where we start a lot of these uh, episodes the first time we have someone on. Tell us a little bit about how bikes came into your life in the first place. What do you remember from back then? Um, I basically, <coughs> excuse me, I basically uh, 
I followed my brother into my brother. Uh, my brother got really into riding riding mountain bikes as a teenager. Um, you know, started buying MBUKs and found that we had a really good local bike shop and and, and joined that club. And I was I used to love. I used to play football. That was uh-huh. my sport. And my brother got into mountain biking. Be- turned out he was actually pretty good at it, pretty fast. And we started traveling to races. So really similar story to a lot of people. I think at that time, kind of late nineties, early two thousands, riding the the regional, like the Scottish Scottish cross country races, and then and then doing the the British MPS series, which was you know sponsored by Rav Four back then, and was yeah. on TV on on Channel Four. So we really got into it, and you know that kind of MBU. You know, for me, I feel it feels like an MBUK kind of uh, era, but I think. I think everyone gets into gets into MBUK when they get into into bike riding, huh? For sure. But um, yeah. So my my brother was was pretty good. I followed him into it. it was kind of in his shadow for a couple of years, and then when we hit hit the kind of junior category, I was, I guess, I started to develop and get get pretty good. So and kind of overtook him. So yeah, cross country racing from the from the very start. Absolutely yeah. loved it. I, I I wanted to ride downhill. Um, but my dad wasn't uh, wasn't as supportive of that <laughs> discipline, so I, I really wanted to ride downhill because I don't know it seemed cooler. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I was also a bit lazy. Okay. Uh, um, so yeah, my dad when we were at races and stuff, and I guess he was kind of like, "No, nope, I'm not. Yeah, you know, if I'm if we're going to do this, I'm going to want you to be fit and healthy, as opposed to." you know, setting fire to everything and drink, <laughs> drinking a bag of cans as it seemed to be back then, but, uh, in the car park. But, um, no, I was, you know, we were, we were always really into, into riding downhills fast and, and, and not, not afraid of riding back up. So it was, it was always pretty loose. Yeah, for sure. Even as an XE guy. Yeah. But you, you, I mean, you've over the years, you've dabbled in pretty much every discipline, right? You seem to be a rider that's turned your hand to a lot of different versions of two wheels. Yeah. Yeah, if it's if it's got handlebars and two wheels, handlebars and and I was going to say brakes, but I don't ride brakes on my BMX. But uh, <laughs> yeah, two wheels and handlebars, I'm I'm pretty into it, you know. Um, and I do always keep coming back to cross country racing, though. Yeah, um, but I love yeah, I love it all. I, you know, just you know, going fast, um, doing jumps, riding far, just always, always looking to. I guess see how far I can take something. You know, I, I do, but I, yeah, properly love it. Nice, yeah, good yeah. mixture for sure. But cr- like you say, cross country kind of became your your main focus, for, certainly from the racing side of things, anyway. And you worked yourself a long way up the rankings, and you ended up racing cross country at, at a World Cup level, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I rode. I think I rode my first World Cup when I was eighteen. So just as I came out of juniors, there wasn't a junior World Cup at the time. Um, when I was competing so as soon as there was a chance to do it I, I did it and that was at Fort William in 2004 um, which yeah I guess I, cross country was the one that I seemed to be best at you know uh-huh. um, although I, yeah, I never really got the chance to race downhill but um, yeah just uh, there was the opportunity to do that I mean we had uh, in, in Scotland we Scottish cycling has always has backed riders um, really well since I've since I've been since I've been riding. So we we got the, the chances to to take trips to Europe and to compete for Scotland. Um, 
which I think at the time was was a bit of a that was like a privilege, wasn't it? I think if you were English or you were Welsh, you never really got that opportunity. So we were really lucky in Scotland that we that we were able to to do that, and it kind of opened opened my eyes to the sport, you know. So we'd race in Belgium and Holland and see how how amazing things were. And, and as a club, we would go to we would go to France um, and race in the Alps. We'd do mm-hmm. a, a three or a four day stage race in the Alps called Trans um, we went out to that maybe two or three years in a row, and it was the the coach the the development coach for Scottish cycling was a guy called Colin Murley. He's from northeast of England, and he was also in my club, Sandy Wallace Cycles. And he was just a total he was just like a can do guy. Like he was he was always up for. He just really encouraged us to do things. So um, I think without that support and guidance and I guess that attitude as well I probably wouldn't have been aspiring to race you know World Cups or, uh-huh. or Commonwealth Games um but as it happened those people were you know Colin Murley um Graham Hard was national coach for Scotland as well and with those guys it was a uh, yeah we were encouraged to do it and and give it a crack yeah what was it like racing at that level because the cross-country side of the sport is kind of more advanced more progressed than the downhill side i mean d- downhill riders are definitely much more athletic individuals these days than they would have been back then probably that 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 has moved on but xc was well ahead the the level it, it, even back then was was pretty insane right yeah it was really professional <clears throat> yeah it was a it was really professional at the top end i think we were you know there've been two two olympics where the the cross country race had been been held so by the time that I was really getting into it and yeah riders like Absalon I think Absalon was really beginning to to excel at the top end um there was like I said there was no junior world cup there was no under 23 world cup so we were straight in with the with the pros and um that was a bit of a you know I definitely feel like it's pretty out of my depth doing that you know um it was yeah, it was, and the races were long too. So you know, you were always racing over two hours, yeah. and yeah, looking back on it, totally, totally underfueled and just like <laughs> just riding like absolutely flat out, um, just to try and make it onto the final lap. <clears throat> so when I so yeah, when I started racing as an elite, it was all and racing World Cups. It was almost like right, you were the thing you had most in your mind was the eighty percent rule. So. If you fall behind eighty percent of the the opening lap time, which yeah. was normally about like twenty five minutes, so I think you you usually have about eighteen minutes to play with. But if you were eighteen minutes behind the leader at any point, you wouldn't be able. You basically be withdrawn from the yeah. race, so yeah, you're yeah. not a lap rider. But it used to just be like Fort William. It used to just be absolute full gas, um, just to try and make sure that we don't uh, you don't fall behind eighty percent of the leader. <laughs> which would generally mean that you'd be riding, if you made it onto the last lap, which you normally would, you would be totally blown, like absolutely exhausted, just groveling around <laughs> the final lap. Um, yeah, it was it was savage. I remember racing. I, uh, one of my first elite races was in Belgium. Um, and it was like, it was, they say it was 2004, so it was Olympic year. Um, the Athen- Athens Olympics was on that year, so everyone, you know, the the top riders were were really on. And uh, this race had Philip Mierhager was 
was racing as world champion. I think I think got busted for EPO of that year or the next year. So mm-hmm. it was like there was definitely doping happening in the races, and I'm I'm kind of rocking up as an 18 year old, like <laughs> totally clueless, um, racing these guys, and I remember like the opening lap being like. I think I came through at the end of the opening lap, like within, like it was lined out. There was no gaps yet, no splits yet. And I was like within 10 seconds of Bart Brenchens, who was like proper hitter, you know? Yeah. And it just totally exploded in the race. Like I blew <laughs> so hard that on the final lap, I was like walking up, a, walking up a climb and there was a photographer there and I was so blown that he just, you know, I ended up sitting down stopping with this guy with, didn't speak any word like he was Belgian or Dutch or something so I couldn't understand him and he just gave me a can of coke and a Mars bar oh, and man. it's like the race is still on and I'm just sitting at the track side just, just eating this Mars bar drinking this can of coke because I've blown so bad and uh, yeah that was my first elite race I guess so it's, it was properly in at the deep end like just uh, well out of my comfort zone yeah but, but an enjoyable uh, experience it was cool. It was cool because you're riding this pro race and the crowds were massive and yeah. there was like a lot of, you know, so much kind of energy around it, you know? And um, I love just being a part of those big races, you know? it's uh, It was always hard to come back home and ride a, like a Scottish or even a, even a British XC because it just wasn't as exciting, you know, if you've ridden a big race. One of, again, one of the greatest moments uh, is uh, was racing the Fort William World Cup and, you know, coming through the the start finish and, you know, Dan Jarvis or Chris Ferber with the commentators then and shouting like, you know, Rab Wardell from Scotland and the grandstand just going <laughs> mental and just like being like, oh my God, like it made, you know, you feel like a total rock star. Yeah. Um, but then like, yeah, it's a bit of a crash back then to earth when you back to, back to reality and racing the, racing the smaller races so it's trying to yeah I was I always wanted to race like a full world cup and I was you know I was would always uh I guess my dream was always to race the like the North American world cups like Mont uh-huh. Anne and yeah Mont Anne was the big one um and I never ever never quite managed to get to get over to it but um yeah that was always the dream for me was to race was to be a world cup racer like and actually race a full season of world cups and I think that would have uh I'd have been super motivated for that, but uh, just never, you never had the resource for that. Yeah, hard to make it work. And and in 2006, I think you made the call to kind of step away from racing at that level anyway. What what drove that decision? Was it kind of a lack of support? Or? Yeah, it was, um, I rode the Commonwealth Games in, in March that year. I'd been in Australia and New Zealand for, for like kind of three months. We went out the start of the year and, and we're kind of, I guess, you know, living the dream. Um, and I imagined that that would be like a springboard, you know, the Commonwealth Games would, you know, come back from that and and opportunities would, would present themselves. And the reality was uh, actually all the funding that I had through Scottish Cycling was, was kind of, I guess, withdrawn and any kind of grants that I'd previously had. So I was basically living off of, you know, I was living at home with my parents and, um, had had good support, like you know, uh, through the national, or through Scottish Cycling and through uh, the Braveheart Cycling Fund, which mm-hmm. was, you know had some some grants from that. So I think in total, of, so I had five thousand pounds, let's say, yeah, plus uh, bikes and kit and whatnot. But that all got withdrawn, and 
it felt, I think if I felt pretty burnt out as well, you know, coming back from it, I'd overtrained, um, you know, just cause it was so ambitious and motivated, you know, you kind of, you can't see the wood for the trees a little bit. So you're, you want, you're so ambitious and really want to make it to the next step up that you actually, you know, by overcooking it, you're actually, you're actually hindering your progress Yeah. or, or I was hindering my progress. And yeah, yeah, I lost my, I lost my funding. I lost my coach. Um, and I was kind of just a bit clueless, I guess, like, yeah. or, or, or like didn't have a lot of confidence in, in my, in what I was doing and just, uh, he overdid it. And yeah, by the end of the year, just was, was disillusioned, I guess. I just, just didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, just, uh, you know, there was no, there wasn't really any, uh, career path ahead. Like I didn't see see where I could go you know what I really wanted to do was get into the British cycling program but you know opportunities for that you know the timing wasn't ideal for me so the under 23 academy came on came on board you know when I moved out of juniors it was when the first academy started with mm-hmm. but it was road and track so Cavendish, Garrett Thomas, yeah. Matt Bramier these kind of riders all went onto that and it just didn't exist for mountain biking um and then the following year, I think it was maybe the following year that it came on, but they took the the juniors that came out that year. You know, I was maybe yeah, one, yeah. one year too old, you know. Um, and I guess it wasn't that easy. It wasn't as easy to get noticed because, you know, being in Scotland, even though we're just in Scotland, it's not far away. It's still, it's not like you had, I don't know, Instagram or anything to kind of show, show what you were doing. So yeah, you were yeah. kind of anonymous between between races so, um, and I didn't race cyclocross either so it was like for about six months of the year I was kind of disappear whereas um, you know the guys that ended up on that academy Ian Bibby and Ian Field were, were really good cyclocross racers and uh-huh. I guess got the attention you know Simon Burney was the manager of the, the mountain bike program at that t- time big mountain bike and you know like a mountain bike and cyclocross like stalwart so yep. I think he you know he knew these riders and um, I guess I I didn't do enough to get to get noticed, uh-huh. so to speak. So I didn't feel like I could get onto the British Cycling Program. And and you mentioned kind of like overtraining and burnout, which is a pretty common story for a lot of athletes, especially in the kind of cross country enduro side of things, mm-hmm. um, pushing at that higher level. You had um, a, an incident at the Cape Epic, I think, where you yeah. uh, DNF'd pushing pretty hard tell us a little bit about that because it sounded <coughs> quite uh quite full-on yeah um that was that was a number of years later so I, I stopped racing in 2006 i got a job as a coach at scottish cycling in 2007 as a development coach um which i did for a few years and then i, I quit that job and, and tried to return to competition again to compete at the commonwealth games in glasgow in 2014 so that was uh-huh. the that was the big goal and I kind of, I, I guess I had the, I knew what I wanted to do, but I, I was kind of winging it. You know, it's like a, I quit my job and didn't, didn't necessarily have the security that I, that I, I guess I needed to prepare and I was kind of gambling. I was hoping that I could uh, secure a kind of professional contract. Um, and, you know, I, 
I had the first year I came back actually was really good in 2012. I, I rode for Alpine bikes and had some good, really good support through Trek UK. I managed to get my points so that I could compete in World Cups. And then tail end of the, like the tail end of that season, I was racing the World Cup in Val d'Isere and managed to get a meeting with John Rourke from Trek Factory Racing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and kind of secured an opportunity to ride for for Trek for the the following season as a UK rider, and they would they would help at some of the the World Cups. And I was hoping at the end of twenty thirteen that I could really progress on that team and and maybe sign as like a real like a professional rider and yeah. have a contract with them. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, and I signed with Orange Monkey, which was a UK UCI team which developed to be the OMX pro team. Um, and we, yeah, we had the chance to ride Cape Epic um, and, and all the world cups and it was an unpaid contract. It was a UCI team and a pro team with, with bikes and expenses and all that kind of stuff. But I was basically my, when I was on camps and I was on training camps, it was all, it was all pretty good. But um, when I was at home, I, uh, like my lifestyle wasn't great. Like I was, I, I was, to be totally honest, was str- really struggling in terms of uh, financially, uh-huh. just to pay bills, and you know, I had, had a mortgage to pay, and yeah. was always just kind of scrapping and hustling to try and to try and make ends meet. And then, um, yeah, my yeah my training wasn't ideal, so I would go on training camps and do do a thirty hour training week and come home, and I guess not you know, just be, be pretty gassed from the, the training I'd done. And then I would basically we just got into this habit of overtraining on a training camp and then coming home and trying to recover. And then eventually went out to, to the Cape Epic and we were pretty, we were doing on a shoestring, you know, like we were, we were camping, um, but you know, on site, but also trying to compete in the elite race. So most of the elite, most of the really competitive teams have the motorhome set up and they have yeah. huge amounts of staff and we were doing it, like I say, we were doing it at a shoestring and basically just wasn't recovering on the days. You know, it was like you finish a stage at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. and you've got, you just got a whole day to wait pretty much to, and it's baking hot. Last thing you want to do is go and sit in a tent. So you're just kind of pottering around like, I just remember there wasn't really wasn't really easy to to get. There was no like bottled water or anything on site, so it was like it was. It was really in in hindsight, it was really weird. But basically, just uh, yeah, got pretty dehydrated, got a bit sick, but just kept riding hard and yeah, and collapsed on the last day. But um, I think it was a. I know I kind of rambled off before, but I think it was just all like I say my it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like, I was, I was just burning myself out. Just the way that I was living wasn't sustainable at all. Like I say, when I was coming home and I, yeah, I'd been on training when I was in training camp, it was fine because everything was paid for, but then I would get home and, you know, I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't training well. And then I would almost be waiting to, to go away. It was almost like when I was getting home, I just didn't, you know, I didn't feel like I was at home. Yeah, you felt like I was off. Con- yeah. I was just really struggling, yeah. like constantly struggling. Um, to you, know, like I said, to make ends meet and to that, really, and- really questioning what I was doing as well. Yeah. Like you know, and the, the, you know, it wasn't working. 
Yeah, and yeah. that that stress in itself is is on your body, right? You add that to training stress, and you're in a bad place. Yeah, it's just not it's not a good lifestyle, you know. When you it's uh, you know, I was like I said, I was struggling. I was, I was depressed. Like I was really, uh-huh. I was really depressed. You know, yeah. and, you know, I, was, I felt like I was totally failing. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had this, I had this goal that I wanted to make, and I could see it was slipping away as well. Like the you know, I was trying to make the team for the Commonwealth Games. And then 2013, the start of 2013 when I was riding with Trek and I started the year really well. Like I'd worked through that winter, I'd worked in Alpine Bikes. Um, part-time, I'd also worked at the at the Velodrome in Glasgow when it had opened as a coach running accreditation. So I was making some money and I was and I was training in the gym with a friend. I basically had a really, had a really well-structured week or lifestyle was that you know it was pretty dull i was either working or training <laughs> yeah um but it was working really well and i got i got really fit you know I, I was winning i was winning races when i was doing it. i felt like i was riding really really well um and then it came into the season start and you know i had some the world cups were coming things were coming up and i was like right i need to quit these jobs and, and really focus on being a full-time bike rider mm-hmm. and it was the worst thing i could do because all the structure of my, you know, first of all, I didn't have any money then. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't making any, wasn't making any money. Um, and also, I, you know, I didn't have any structure to my week, so it was like, it wasn't like I had loads of other full time bike riders to train with. So I would, I would find myself just waiting around, waiting for people to finish work so I could go training at night. And yeah, I just didn't have, yeah, I didn't have any structure, so. I was kind of, it was kind of my own worst enemy. And I also felt like, because I was, you know, so where was I anyway? I was, I'm rambling, but yeah, I was, I was, I was, I'd placed myself. I was probably, there was three, three opportunities to qualify for Scotland in these Commonwealth games. And I was probably kind of at this, at the first half of 2013, I would say I was the third pick, you know? Okay. So Grant, Grant Ferguson and Kent Gallagher were, were pretty well established as the first two. Uh And there was, Myself and about five other riders really trying to, you know, get the third spot. And my, I was riding really well, but I wasn't performing in the races where I could qualify. Okay. You know? Um. So, yeah, I basically felt like I was, I felt like I was almost a start to make this team. And then as the season went on, I realized I just wasn't. And I think that was part of the reason why going to South Africa was, it was a, there were some UCI races that were were there that could have been qualifying opportunities, um, but I felt a lot of pressure that I needed to qualify in those races because yeah. the window was getting closer, and I was, you know, I was one of the riders who hadn't managed to qualify, you know. Um, so yeah, the pressure was just getting to me. I could just feel like this thing was slipping away, and I wasn't going to make it. So, um, like I said, I was when I was at home, I felt kind of like a bit of a failure and a bit. Yeah, a bit kind of depressed. <clears throat> Excuse me, tickly cough. But um, yeah, yeah, I just felt a bit, uh, yeah, like I was struggling. So it was a, uh, yeah, it was tough. But I think a lot of it, you know, in hindsight, you know, the best thing I could have done was kind of kept the part time jobs and not not let the not let my ego get ahead of me. I think uh-huh. I felt like you know I wanted to be a pro, but. I wasn't a pro, <laughs> so it was like it was like it was kind of like you know fake it till you make it, but it just wasn't really working, you know. So how did you dig yourself out of that? Because when you get into that kind of 
depressive state it can often be like a, a downward spiral eh? like how did you pull yourself out um i quit racing uh-huh. to start with um was that an easy decision at that point in that state so when i was in the hospital in, in south africa i remember just feeling relieved that it was all over okay yeah, i was in, i was in intensive care for about a week um maybe not quite as much for a week but i just remember being just in the hospital just thinking right <clears throat> you can you can forget about this Commonwealth Games, you know, it's not gonna happen. Uh-huh. You know, there's you're not gonna qualify, you're not gonna go. And I just felt a huge sense of relief that I that I didn't have to do it. Yeah. Um and I felt really down for for months, you know. Yeah. Um and uh but but the opportunity that came with it was, you know, I had I'd been freelancing as a coach as well for Dirt School. Mm-hmm. With Andy Barlow and Chris Ball, yeah, here in the Tweed Valley, yeah, in the Tweed Valley, absolutely, and it was a really, it was a pretty small operation then. You know, the base course was was happening. Um, I think there was probably only about six, but six or eight students on the mm-hmm. base course at that time, and Andy Andy ran it pretty much, pretty much on his own. But Chris and I had worked at Scottish Cycling together, um, and. Yeah, they basically made a job for me, um, which yeah, I'm really grateful for. I've, I've, you know, and I always will be grateful for that. You know, they. So I yeah, I started working with art school in in the Tweed Valley, doing base courses, doing delivering day courses, doing privates, and and kind of supporting Andy because the demand was there for more. You know, he was basically turning away work. You know, he's so yeah. busy, like and. You, you know, he's he's working. He's always working super hard, and we were developing a dirt school app at that point as well. So I came on board and uh, and worked for dirt school for for about six years, and that was really my um, it was my main focus. Yeah, it was I put everything into that for kind of three or four years. Um, like I say the six years in total was the the two years of freelancing I did as well. But yeah, um that's really what I put all my energy into was, was coaching for dirt school and, and, yeah. and working with Chris and Andy. And it was a, yeah, it was an amazing time, but similarly kind of burnt out with that. Cause I, I lived in Glasgow where well, I do live in Glasgow and I used to commute down here a lot. So, um, it was, a it got to a point where again, that was unsustainable. So yeah. I, I almost had like an hour each way. Yeah. Over, over yeah. an hour. Yeah. Especially if the traffic's bad and, um, when I first started, actually, we, there was only one. There was one van. We, you, know, Andy had the dirt school van, and uh, when we used to do base days, I would get the train. I would get up at about half five in the morning, um, get the train from Queen Street to Edinburgh Haymarket, ride up to Andy's flat, get in the flat, uh, get in the van, drive to Galashields, <laughs> get the base bus, drive to early, then do the session. You know, riding. And then just reverse that process and go home. Oh, wow. I used to sleep. I used to stay in Edinburgh a fair bit, but um, but mostly, yeah, I was I was doing that like get up at get up at five in the morning or five thirty or whatever, and get home at half seven, and then do that a few days a week, and it was a uh, it was worth it. Like it, for a while, it was it was so worth it because when you were at you were at work, it wasn't didn't really feel like work. You know, you've got, you're you're riding and coaching riders like you know, Ennis Graham, Luke Cryer. Um, Reese Wilson, you know, it was it was a lot of fun, and me and Andy used to always 
could have a, a real laugh like driving down the road and I did enjoy it but you can <laughs> looking back on it I know why I kind of burnt out so yeah but um did that help you sort of rediscover your love for mountain bikes though like being in that environment yeah yeah big time yeah um it was that you know it was I jumped right you know I jumped right in it so like when I was when I raced cross country I would have like an XC bike and a road bike and I used to get the odd you know I had a, I had a track remedy when I rode for alpine bikes and um I don't think I had a trail bike or an enduro bike when I when I rode for OMX, but yeah, when I worked for Dirt School, I got you know that's where the partnership with Santa Cruz started. Yeah, and I got my first Bronson, and I was just like, oh my god, this bike, <laughs> you know. And uh, you know, when I when I raced cross country, actually, two, end of two thousand thirteen, I got offered an enduro contract with with Ultrasport Rose. Okay. Uh, rose bikes yeah which i turned down because i had uh you know still had these aspirations to ride for to ride the commonwealth games you know yeah. so it, again another kind of one of these sliding doors moments where i wonder what might have been if i'd if i'd taken that but you know i was really keen to like I say I'm, I'm a multi-discipline guy i like to try try doing different things but uh you know to get this bronson and to, to start riding one of these bikes and um i used to work for where Andy Barlow, but also Rory Cunningham, we would okay. work through the you know through the winter on the base course, and it was almost like this new. You was learning a totally new discipline, you know, um, and my riding progressed tons like over that two three years, and because I you know the only bike that I had was a was an enduro bike, so yeah. I was like, oh, ride some enduro, you know. Let's see what this is all about. See if I can get get any good at it. So I would ride the Scottish enduro series and some of the events here in, in the Tweed Valley. And yeah, I couldn't, yeah, it was, yeah, it was mega. It was like, it was, uh, changed it up a bit. Um, yeah, and got pretty, yeah, got pretty handy on the enduro bike a lot. You know, felt like it, certainly felt like I, you know, improved plenty. Nice. And you, yeah, like you say, you ultimately needed to find something with less of a commute. So you went to Scottish cycling for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Scottish Cycling were recruiting for Glasgow Go Ride coaches as part of the HSBC UK investment. So uh-huh. Glasgow's like a, you know, as we see with the the major events that Glasgow has put on, you know, it's uh, cycling in Glasgow is a big thing. So they were recruiting Go Ride coaches, um, and yeah, I, I think I ended up applying slightly late. Um, I'd had. Uh, <laughs> Like I say, I was burning out. So I think um, one day I'd driven down to a session at Inners. Um, I'd really, I had really been struggling with with the commute and just, yeah, just like I say, burning out. So um, again, feeling pretty depressed and 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 not really, not really knowing what I was doing. And I'd seen these jobs had been advertised. I'd actually been asked to apply, and I'd said, "Oh, I've got." You know, I've already got this job, and then I thought, you know, I saw it was there, and I decided to apply. And I think I, I do think I put my application in like the day that the applications closed, um, but they accepted it, and and I got an interview and, and got that job. So, and it was, it wasn't as good a job as the, like in terms of the quality of the work, it wasn't as good as the dirt school. I wasn't uh-huh. working at Glentress or early then. I wasn't riding awesome trails and stuff but it was a it was a secure 
it was a well-paying job. Yeah. It was secure. The, my commute went from being an hour and 40 minutes to 10 minutes yeah. at most. Um, it sounds bad, but it was a job that I could I could do it. Rel- you know, I was, I was pretty comfortable doing the yeah, job. Yeah. You know, I felt like I had had a lot to offer with it. Um, and that was a bit of a turning point as well. Like you know, it, it had been like I said, I'd always kind of struggled with this, this uh, over committing to things and burning out. Um, and and ultimately, like my mental health would always would suffer with it. You know, I'd, I would kind of burn myself out. I'd feel depressed didn't necessarily have the best coping mechanisms uh-huh. to deal with those things. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of a turning point for me. Um, cause I, I almost, I undercommitted, if you like, almost, <laughs> I, 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 or I, at least gave myself some time to breathe. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I gave myself some time off finally, you know, I could have, I could relax a little bit. Um, and, yeah, it was a, it was a real big it was a real big change, real big turning point, and um, yeah, I think that part you know that was probably three or four years ago, and, and looking at the way that my life has kind of turned around from that moment is, I would say that was a big turning point, um, and a lot of it's to do with like the actions or the choices that I've made. It's not it's not been outside factors so much, but it's almost just been being a little bit. Uh, yeah, just a bit smarter with with what I've done and also making some changes to my, my lifestyle, you know? Yeah, a bit kinder to yourself maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, prioritising things to just stay healthy, I think. Yeah. You know, actually prioritising sleep and, you know, not work. You know, I used to... I used to... Uh, <clears throat> I used to work on, like, minimal sleep, Yeah, let's say, and I would always be just rushing constantly in a state of you know rushing around mm-hmm. and trying to and and doing tons of stuff you know riding you know I would ride tons as well like so yeah. it wasn't just working you're riding on my bike I love riding my bike so whenever I had free time I'd be I'd be riding if I could and that was often like skate park you're certainly at that point I was riding a lot of skate park yeah. and BMX um outside of work um but yeah just just giving you know giving myself um some time and having that work-life balance, you know, realizing that you need to sleep a lot. You need to, you need to eat well. One thing that, uh, you know, certainly when I was riding BMX, it was like, we used to party quite a lot as well. So realizing that, you know, sometimes, you know, prioritizing going to sleep, going to sleep and chilling out rather than, rather than going to, uh, going out with the boys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some lifestyle lifestyle changes that have really helped were just physical and mental health, you know. Yeah. Have you felt very different then as a result of that? It's been a steady change, you know. I think there was a big part of it was also in, in you know, when we, when the pandemic hit, you know. So I'd worked for Scottish Cycling for about just over a year, um, probably about 18 months. I worked for as a go-ride coach for about a year and then I got the opportunity to to be the pathway coach for BMX. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a promotion. Um, and I was always looking for, you always want to progress things. So I was looking for an opportunity how to progress and, and this, this job came up. Um, but I realized that kind of, I probably wasn't the right person for the job. I think I could do it, but it was, you know, I, that was a job that deserved to be 
done by somebody who lived and breathed BMX. Okay. And I love BMX, but it wasn't not as much as I love cross country mountain biking. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah like if, if there was an XC mountain bike job, sure, yeah. that would have been the one for me. But, um, and it was at that time as well that Cathro had been in touch. He was, he was doing the walk to talk privateer. He wanted me to coach him. Um, both the cars as well. Um, George and Henry Carr were, were looking for a, for a trainer. Um, and I decided, you know, it was a good opportunity to stop working for other people and work for myself. Um, timing of that, it could have been a disaster because I did that right at the start of the pandemic. <laughs> um, so in, instead of living the furlough dream, I was, uh, I was self-employed and but no, I was at, it was, it worked really well because I was able to work well enough. Again, I had that even more so less, um, less pressure, just staying at home uh, in one, in one place. Um, I just moved into a new house um, and was also living with my girlfriend, Katie, mm-hmm. um, who was training for the, the Olympics. Um, yeah, I was going to say, you've got a fair uh, level of drive in your household, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's pretty inspiring and motivating, you know, just not, you know, just with Katie, but with her family um, her brother, um, really, really good athletes. Yeah. And almost, uh really demonstrated how wrong I was getting it when I was, when I was trying to ride. And, um, yeah. So just, just, uh, to be training, you know, I basically, we had this, this free time. I'd actually just been sponsored with a, from a road bike brand. So I had a road bike for the first time in years. Santa Cruz had given me a, and sponsored me with a Santa Cruz blur, which is a cross country bike. Yeah. And just done, I'd, I'd managed to, I'd raced on the track through the winter actually. Um, so I'd been riding track league in the Glasgow Velodrome and it was starting to get kind of fit and, and Wahoo had also, when we'd moved into the new house, Wahoo had, um, you know, supported us with a, with a kicker and a full pain cave set up. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd been using the kicker previously. I'd been renting one from a, from a friend who had asked to coach me, um, and, uh, I'd been using Wahoo kit for, for a couple of years. So to get this, this like, you know, to move into a new house, have this pain cave set up and have, you know, have a road bike, have a mountain bike. I was like, man, this is awesome. You know? So, I, and I just started to get really fit. I would, I would train with Katie um, started to do longer rides. And I remember just taking off like these bigger and bigger rides and, and uh, Red Bull had been in touch as well. And it started to support me through the field marketing. So, so really just with seeding, like, um, with, with product mm-hmm. um, and through this time I'd started to like I said started to get fit so I'm speaking to Ross at Red Bull and um, I'm like I'm, you know I feel I feel like I'm riding really well here I'm starting to get really fit and I was like I think I'm going to ride the West Island Way again I'd really like to do this so we started chatting and you know initially the plan was with, with Red Bull was we were going to do like a dot watching you actually set up a, a web page through Red Bull and have a dot watch and thing. And we, we would, uh, I would try and break the West Highland Way record, yeah. which stood at like 10 and a half hours, I think at the time. Um, yeah, it was when, when Keith Forsyth had the record and it was, it, my whole thing was at that time I'd been chatting with Red Bull and it was like, right, 10 years ago, I was the last time I did it. I'm going to try and break 10 hours 
you know, it was all, I think it was all around the whole 10, 10 yeah. side of things. But uh, yeah, we were going to do that. And Red Bull had, um, we're going to support some, with some budget to make a, to make a film. And when I pitched the, you know, I told Wahoo about this, they were like, this is really cool. Yeah, we, we can get on board with this. And, and then it grew arms and legs because, you know, the budget really inc- increased and, um, you know, Santa Cruz got on board too. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history. So unfortunately, you know, Red Bull really opened the doors for me um, on that one. You know, having the support of such a, I guess, such a prominent brand, I think really made people pay attention. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, the revolvement wasn't actually that, wasn't that big in the end, but um, it's still kind of really grateful and still work really closely with Red Bull and and Ross at Red Bull. So it's uh, yeah, it's cool to be able to deliver for those those guys as well. Yeah, and you uh, you didn't just break the record; you pretty much smashed it to pieces, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, Gary McDonald broke it that year, so it was, but again, because of the 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 pandemic and all the events being off um you know, gary mcdonald's a, a real fast bike rider from fort william real good motorbike trials rider and also fantastic like cyclocross and xe rider and he'd always he's, he's from kinlock leaven and uh-huh. he'd moved to fort william and he'd always i don't think he'd ever ridden the west island way but it would always been like in his mind and uh just so happened to be that we we both went for it in the same year without without really knowing it and and he smashed it like he went from yeah, it was like I said, it was like 10 and a half hours that Keith Forsyth had done and, and then Gary made it something like 9.28. Okay. Which was which was rapid and, and really got me stressing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah, cause it's, so to, to put this in context, it's 96 miles yeah. and a pretty challenging trail as well, right? Certainly yeah. elements of it. Yeah, there's some, well, there's bits that you can't ride for sure. Like there's a long section at Loch Lomond which you can't ride. Um and yeah, it's off the top of my head, I think it's three and a half thousand meters elevation. Um, so there's some fast sections for sure, but like there's some bits which are really slow going. So it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, when I first did it, it was, I did it in just over 12 hours. So the fact that it was starting to look at going under 10 hours was, I mean, it was, it was showing that bikes have come on a lot, but also nutrition and this whole FKT movement through the, through the pandemic was a, yeah. was a big thing. So Fastest known time is that what that yeah. stands for? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a real course record. There's not really any, any rules other than I guess like the, the outdoor access code that mm-hmm. you need to stick to. So yeah, it was, it was a really cool project, really quite stressful. Again, like one of these ones where I'm like, why did I do this to myself? Because <laughs> I feel like super anxious and nervous going into it. Um, and then also having the pressure of making a film because, you know, it's like, it's all well and good saying you can make a film and just document what happens. But if you don't break the record, nobody's going to want, you know, people are going to be pretty bummed out if yeah. you sit through a film and like, yeah, and he didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> so, <clears throat> no, it was it was mega cool to do that. You have to have the backing of Wahoo and, and Santa Cruz um, and, and, you know, and a few other brands like Cushcore, Continental, Enduro. Um it was really cool to to make that happen, and that was a, like a real career highlight. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, it's it's still it's on the band the the films on the Banff tour internationally. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, so it's a twenty it's a over twenty minutes long documentary piece, and it's uh, sort of had about one hundred and seventy thousand views on YouTube. So it's yeah, it's 
it's massive for me. It's been, yeah. it was, a, yeah, it was cool. And that, that really has, um, restarted my career, if you like, like as a, as a bike rider, uh-huh. you know, it's, um, and it, it was nine hours, 14, is that right? Nine fourteen, Yeah. I, I actually, I actually broke the record before that we made the film just to kind of put my mind at ease. And I did a nine hour, nine eighteen, uh-huh. um, and I rode a really long chunk of that on a completely flat tire, just on a cush core okay. because I couldn't be bothered changing it. Um, or couldn't be bothered fixing it. I was like, Oh, I saw it. Like I was a bit tired and I just, I'd done it pretty much self-supported and I just rode into Fort William on a flat and thought, yeah. You know, oh man, I've broken the record here. I'm going to go way faster than this. You know, I I, I was thinking like kind of eight forty five, eight and a half hours okay. was what I was actually wanted to do. Yeah, um, I thought I was capable of doing, but on the day we, you know, had another puncture and I had a headwind. So okay, nine fourteen was was pretty good, but to only be four four minutes faster than what I'd previously done, and uh, especially having ridden like such a long way on a flat tire. Yeah. Um, it was pretty, I don't know if you, if you watch the film, you can tell I'm pretty disappointed <laughs> at the time, but, um, you know, and, and the, the time has been broken since, you know, Gary, Gary returned to the, to it and the following spring and, and did about eight forty five, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Connor Swift, uh, from Arkea Samsic, who's a professional road rider, um, did it in, I think, what I say, eight thirty-two. I might be, I might be wrong with that. But I think it's eight hours and thirty-two. Um, and he did that just after the Tour de France last year, so about two weeks after completing the Tour de France. Yeah. And what's, uh, you know, I kind of said with it in the film, like the big, the big goal was to try and make a film that inspired people to ride, you know, and or brought attention to the West Highland Way and Scottish mountain yeah. biking. And Connor's texting me on the first rest day at the Tour de France. So actually in the middle of the Tour de France asking me, what's Loch Lomond like? Like how hard is the hike of bike? And I'm just like, I cannot believe this. Like this guy's at the biggest bike race on the planet and he's thinking about the West Island way. So that's cool. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Like I, I was really happy with that. And it was great to see Connor come do it. And I've still been having like plans to do it myself again. I want to, I want to ride it unsupported and, and uh, I think I can, I think with a with really good conditions and um, with a with a perfect ride, I think I can I can break Connor's time. But um, he he did it in you know with minimal relatively minimal prep. He'd he'd, he'd wrecked the route, mm-hmm. um, but he'd you know it was his first time riding it, and the conditions were pretty pretty shocking. I think okay. like the wind wasn't the wind direction wasn't great, and it's pretty yeah. overgrown when when you do it. If you do it in July, it's pretty overgrown. So. Right. Yeah, he. Uh, so I think there's time. There is time there. I mean, he's a, he's a better rider than me, without a doubt. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you don't. Uh, you know, you don't get. You know, he, he was British road race champion. He was. Um, he's won Trobro Leon, which is a big, a big uh, one day classic in France, and he's completed the Tour de France. I think he's finished it twice. So he's legit, you know, and he can jump. So he's a good mountain biker. <laughs> so it's. Uh, yeah, he's a better rider than me for sure. But I think uh, I think I can still challenge that time. Yeah. On the West Island, it's just finding a time when it's when it's going to work. Watch this space. Yeah, I thought about doing it up to never when when the World Cup was on. I was going to ride up on the Friday, but that's just a typical uh, another example of me just uh, setting myself up to fail by overcommitting to things. So it's uh, now I'm glad I, d- I didn't do it in the end. Um, I am getting better at uh, doing less, but uh, 
I think I failed at that this week as well. <laughs> well yeah, we'll talk a bit about that in a sec. Yeah. So that was that the kind of kickstart for the work you've been doing with Wahoo? Because you've been doing this kind of, is it called Old Enough to Know Better? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, off the success of the film, like, you know, the West Highland Way film went, went down really well. And um, I'd been working with Wahoo on various levels over about a period of like two or, th- two or three years in the lead up to that and I felt there was an opportunity to uh to build on it you know so and and I guess one thing with the the FKTs and uh these kind of rides is you're not really competing against anyone it's like you're you're doing your own challenge against a against a a course Mm -hmm. and I felt like um you know I got to a point where I was fit enough that I thought you know I can actually I can compete now you know I can can jump back in and ride the you know, I wanted to ride, you know, I do want to ride World Cup cross-country races again. I want to ride, uh, I want to ride the Cape Epic again. I want to go and finish that off because I feel like I'm, you know, I am older and wiser, you know. Um, I do, you know, so the the title Old Enough to Know Better is kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know. It's, um, and I, and I got a bit of grief off people being like, you're not even, you're not, he's not even that old, you know. It's like <laughs> Greg Menard's 40 and he's world champion. It's like, yeah, but. How old are you now? Mid-30s? Yeah. Uh, I'm 36. Okay. I turned 37 in two weeks. Yeah. Um, but I think the old enough to know better thing is like it's a, uh, you know, the, the saying is old enough to know better, young enough to do it anyway, right? Um, and also, yeah, I am, I do know better is, is kind of the, the talking of the, yeah, the title. Um, you know, I've got more experience and it's, um, but I, I can't think of many people who have actually, actually turned professional at the age of 36 you know, for the first time, which is, which is what I've done. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's at a time where most riders are thinking about if most riders, you know, if you make it professional, it's normally in your early twenties that you sign these contracts and you start that. And, and then you've got riders like Nino or Marat who have, who have been, you know, they're the same age as me. I think they're maybe a year younger than me, but they're, they're kind of getting to the point where they're maybe, thinking about winding down for retirement yeah. know, at the end of their career and I'm actually in theory just starting mine so it's uh yeah it's a bit different um and yes uh last year it was mostly about returning to ride the British National Cross Country Championships so the opportunity was there to, uh, you know I guess to produce content um the British mountain bike scene is has been the backbone of my career or or my competition program whenever i've competed seriously that's always been like the go-to is the british xc series the mps yeah um and there's always been great riders but what's always been the case is it's it's a really is quite an amateur it's an amateur sport so mm-hmm. like with with mountain biking it is it is pretty pro-am so to speak so there's you know you ride world cups you are racing against top professionals but normally you come into it as an amateur yeah and you're kind of doing your best and it's really similar ews is the same you know downhill world cups are the same you've kind of got the privateers jumping in trying to make the best of it and i guess one of the challenges with cross country is you you know in a downhill race or an or an ews at least you've got the the tracks clear yeah so you can lay down your runs and and go fast but in an xc race you're you start at the back and you've kind of you know, to make it to the front, you really need to be pretty exceptional, like a, like a Tom Pedcock. Um, yeah. You know, Tom Pedcock can start mid-pack and still finish at the front because he's, 
yeah, he's like the once in a generation talent, you know. So it's but it's quite hard to get noticed. Um But um yeah, I think the British the riders in the UK are always or have been very good. You know, we've you we look back the last twenty years, there's been some pretty exceptional young riders come through the British programme. But they, they always seem to uh when they graduate from that programme, if you like, they they pretty much retire mm-hmm. straight away. Um or or kind of fizzle out. It's uh you know, the way the British cycling programme works is it's all geared towards the Olympics. So to meet the criteria as you as you develop and as you get older, you know, if you want to stay on that programme past the age of twenty three, you need to be you need to basically demonstrate that you're a med- you have medal winning potential, medal winning potential in world championships, European championships or or the Olympic Games. Yeah. Which we've seen some riders do really well, like um Isla Short, Annie Last, Evie Richards, of course, like yeah. is you know, Evie is world champion. Um we've seen seen riders on the women's side of the, um do that really well, but in the men's it just seems to be that they they just I guess fall away a little bit. Um and one thing I wanted to do was to try and bring the attention to the national series to show the quality of the riders, the quality of the races and, and hopefully hopefully bring some money to the sport as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this year I'm I'm competing as a as a professional, um I kind of you know, secured that support pretty late on, like kind of February, March this year and uh actually stepped back from coaching um just in the last month to to try and try and compete. But I would really like it if there was the opportunity for more British British riders to be to be professional. Yeah. Um it'd be nice to see some growth there for sure. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not really sure how I've managed to ramble onto that, but um I can't remember what the question was. But just the, the yeah, the video series that you've been putting together and it is following your your journey, I guess, back yeah, up so, through the rankings. Yeah, so last year it was at National X E Champs and, and we're shooting already this year. Um which have been, you know, we covered the first round of the British National Series in Tong, which was, again, another UCI classified race, which was cool. You know, it's really good to see UCI points back in the UK races. Yeah. Um, on the XC and, and a few downhill races, I've got UCI points. So, um, and yeah, second episode will be, has been being shot here at the EWS nice. in Scotland. Yeah, and you've got obviously got your pick of Wahoo's product range for your training and your riding. What have you, what have you kind of settled on? What have you found particularly useful? Because I was saying before we started, I've used the kicker for getting ready for my own EWS journey, yeah. and that's been invaluable over the winter. And well, even as the weather's improved for like very targeted sessions and yeah, yeah. specific power related stuff and some sprint and interval work. But yeah, what have you what have you used and, and found the most beneficial for you? I guess. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the kicker is a, a big one, you know, especially through, uh, like you say, targeted sessions. So if you've got something which you're really, you know, if you're doing a VO2 interval session or a anaerobic capacity session, it's, it works really, really well. It also gives you a bad weather alternative. But the main, I mean, I use, I use all the products basically. Uh-huh. Um, my first, the first product I ever used from Wahoo was the Ticker, um, heart rate strap yeah and I bought one of those when I was working at dirt school because I was riding I was riding quite a lot um and I was recording all my rides just on my on my phone 
using Strava. Yeah. And I wanted to start tracking heart rate. And I'd seen these, uh, I can't remember, it was like Chris Froome was, I think they maybe had a, a, a deal with Sky and Chris Froome was wearing this heart rate strap and it was saying it was Bluetooth and AMP Plus compatible. So I bought one just so that I could record heart rate. And I'm like, I remember it just being really simple um, and easy to use. And the fact that it worked with my phone was was mega. And then the next thing I was doing was I, was, I did a charity ride. I set myself a challenge. I said, and like I said in the West and the West film, I always set myself a challenge once a year, really, of trying to train for something. So a couple of years ago, I, just, I, I bought a cyclocross bike from Santa Cruz. I got a stigmata. Um, and I wanted to race cross through the through the winter, and there was a one race that had always kind of caught my eye was the Koppenberg Cross in Belgium, mm-hmm. which is a you know big it, it goes up the Koppenberg, which is an iconic cobbled climb in Flanders. Um, and I was like, that that looks cool. And the so it, it's a midweek race. I think it was on a Thursday, um, a Wednesday or Thursday. And then in Scotland, there was a round of the national, the national trophy, which is the British Cyclocross Series in Irvine. So I was like, right, well, what I'll do is I'll ride Irvine and then I'll bike pack yeah. from Irvine to Belgium and then race the Koppenberg, like as a, in a one And I was like, how am I going to find my way to bloody Belgium? So, you know, I think I slid into Louis Quinton's DMs and, and, from Wahoo and asked them to if I could get a, a bolt head unit yeah. with maps, which we did. So you end up getting that um, that head unit and did that project where I rode, you know, I called it kind of bike pack to Belgium and um, and raised some money for CAM, which is the the campaign against living miserably. It's a, a okay. men's mental health charity nice. in, in the UK. Yeah, um, which is uh, you know having suffered with depression. You know, episodes of depression myself and I've lost a lot of friends to to suicide um over the years it was something that was you know really important to me to you know something I was I'm passionate about yeah I still am passionate about so um yeah that was that project and that's kind of what started the the ball rolling with with Wahoo so yeah I was using the element bolt um ticker heart rate strap and then when I had that cyclocross bike actually and I was training for that event I rented a, a Wahoo kicker from okay. from my friend James McCallum, and I'd asked him to coach me. I was it was when I was working at Scottish Cycling, and I was I kind of didn't want to think about what training I was doing. And I was like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, fair. you know. And it was it was quite cool. So I used that as you know that kicker then. Um, and since then, you know, things have obviously you know, Wahoo have started to support me, and um, I've got the whole indoor setup. You know, the pain cave setup. So I've got the I have a kicker, I have the headwind fan, oh, I nice. have the kicker climb yeah. um, unit, which is great when you're doing like uh, virtual racing. So that like actually elevates the front of the bike. Yeah. So you feel like, what does it, it feel like? Does it feel quite realistic? Or yeah, it's yeah, it's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's like when you're riding on like if you're on RGT or something like you're and you're racing, it's you know you hit climb, it all starts to ramp up, and the resistance goes on the you know the resistance increases. Yeah. I think the way it works is if the the software tells the kicker you're going uphill that resistance increases and that as the resistance increases the climb gets told to, to okay. raise yeah to match whatever the gradient is right and uh like if you're doing a if you're doing a you know if you i don't tend to do it that often but if you were just on riding a route for example 
be really good because you have to change gear you have to it just keeps you occupied a little bit it's yeah, a bit more yeah, yeah. stimulation you know oh for um, sure it's way better than riding the old school turbo trainers eh yeah big time yeah and uh it's quite cool for the racing when you're when you're racing and it's like you hit like some steep climb and loofing or whatever you're riding the flanders <laughs> course and it's like bang and you've got to drop down the gears and full gas and yeah it's it's, it's pretty good fun yeah um yeah, and then I, I use a, a Roma head unit in training um, pretty much all the time. I've got a Element Bolt, which I use for cross-country racing, which is kind of lighter one. And then I use a Rival when I'm riding, you know, Rival Watch when I'm riding enduro trails and uh-huh. that kind of thing, or you know, in the gym. So, yeah, I'm not really a watch guy. I don't really wear a watch very often, but I've I've started to wear it. Yeah, I've started to wear a watch. There you <laughs> it's go. probably the way it's enough. But, uh, got yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty heavily bought into the whole, uh, the whole setup. Like I really, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to have that support and uh, really happy to promote it because I think they are, you know, they, for me they have been really, they've really helped me um, nice. in terms of turn around my fitness and and enjoy training as well. You know, like uh, you. Know, when I, something when I started to use them, I had a full time job and it was training in, in the evening and yeah, uh, you know it just makes everything easier and a bit more enjoyable. Yeah, for sure. And they've done a good job on the product, saying they're super easy to use and robust. Like I found anyway, the interface with the phone and stuff is yeah, very yeah. I mean, I, yeah, compared to some brands. So yeah, yeah. that was that was like, again like when I when I bought that first ticker, it was that was the was my impression of it. I was like, oh, this is easy. Like, you know, I just pair it with my phone and now it works with, or I don't know if it still, this, that still works with the Strava updates or whatever. But at the time it was like, man, this is, this is so simple. Yeah. You know, and I think, uh, you know, you get your, your training stress score on training peaks and it starts to, uh, yeah, it just keeps, yeah. It's said that bit of data. I, I love, I do love a bit of data. Um, I love my, I love my parameters and, yeah, recording and, and doing my sessions, keeping keeping my power curve fresh. Nice. I'm all about that. Like, I love it. Good stuff. And, you know, that support has brought you here to EWS. So you raced EWS here when it first came, I think, back in like 2015. 2015 sort of I did it. I think the first year it was here was 2014. And uh-huh. That was when I was riding, still riding cross-country World okay. Cups. And I turned down that contract to, yeah, to yeah. race the EWS. And uh, I was in Germany. I was off the back of the Cape Epic, so I'd, I'd missed a ton of training. I really wasn't particularly healthy, and I was not riding very well. Certainly wasn't riding as well as I had the previous year. And I was, you know, that's the one thing with cross country racing. I found certainly at that level was if you're not, it's great when you're on the Im- improving and you're breaking new ground and you're and you're getting your you know the best results you'd ever had. But I was like fifty places back from where I was the previous year and just. You know, you're at a race when you're at an XE race. Well, I think when you're at any race of like a, that level, you you sacrifice a lot. Like, so you basically just see the course and your accommodation that you're staying. You yeah. don't really do. You know, you're in like a new part of the world, but it's not like you're exploring trails. Um, which I think, in, to be fair, in enduro, if you're at an EWS, you get to ride some pretty cool stuff. You know, sure. Outside of racing, and you have plenty of variety. But you race during the races. Um, so I remember just having like this most savage FOMO, just <laughs> seeing all these how, how much fun everyone was having in Peebles and uh, Glentress and others. Um, while I was sat in a 
sat in a hotel in Alpstad or Nova Mesto, not particularly enjoying myself. Um, and I was just like, oh, I want to, I want to ride that next year. So what, yeah, I was back working for Dirt School. I rode DWS here. Um, yeah, last, yeah, last time, well, the previous time it was here until it came back last year. So, uh, yeah, it's cool to be, it's good to be back here. And the plan this week was to ride the e-bike race and then follow up with the 100, which would have been four continuous big days on the bike, but unfortunately got a bit, got a bit sick after the e-bike race. Yeah. Uh, Tell us a bit about that e-bike race. Cause it's, it's pretty brutal, right? Was it three batteries, kind of three loops? Yeah. Three, yeah. Three batteries, three loops, um, just blasting everywhere on boost. A lot of fun, like a <laughs> hell of a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I think 14 stages, uh, two power stages, which are uphill, um, and the, the rest were, were downhill enduro stages on some pretty awesome state, pretty awesome trails. And you also re- repeated some stages. So I think there was uh, maybe six or seven or eight stages in total, something like that. Okay. Um, and then you repeated a couple. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was unreal. Like I think part of the re- my motivation to do it, you know, was one thing was with with there being EWS here, uh, you know, it's the biggest event that comes to Scotland just now. Um, you know, it certainly sits alongside the the downhill World Cup, um, and I just wanted to be a part of it. You know, I really wanted to to ride it and kind of see if I could still do it because I've not ridden the enduro for a number of years. Um. Yeah, and also to kind of show that, you know, I think there's a lot, lot of people talk. Uh, there's a lot of people that have beef with e-bikes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, you hear a lot of people talk calling it cheating. Um, <clears throat> you know, they call call people who just ride an e-bike at uh, any time cheats, and it's uh, you know even outside of any kind of competition, which is which is quite funny. But uh, no, just to just to show that. I wanted to demonstrate, or I want to demonstrate, uh, just how much effort it is, yeah. and how hard it is. And I think if you speak to um, some of the riders who competed in that race, they will tell you how hard it was and how much of a physical challenge it was, as well as a, a technical challenge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my other motivation was I wanted to do those four days, four big days, to to be a, like a last kind of overload before tapering into the European Marathon Championships, which is in two weeks' time. Um, yeah what was it like then out on the out on the trails I mean you mentioned that other athletes were struggling there were some real top names out there that were finding it pretty hard work it was it was hard eh like um, the liaison times were tight so I think we you know, we started at started at the festival village in um, in Erleven and then the first stage was New York, New York, at the top of the golfy, and I think we had about, I think thirty five minutes to get there, okay, which is pretty hot, like. And then from the start of that time, from the top of New York to the top of Flat White, you had ten minutes. Yeah, so you've got maybe yeah between three and four minutes on the stage, and then basically straight into the fire road, blast back up. Yeah. Um. From the bottom of there, you were up to the top of pre-drinks, uh, which was, um, and we went up, basically rode up the old school downhill course. Mm-hmm. So mega steep and tech. 
and you had maybe 20 minutes to do that. So what I was finding that I was basically riding straight out the bottom of the stage, beginning the liaison and, and riding pretty hard to get back up to the top and still only having, you know, five to 10 minutes before my stage started. So it did, it felt pretty, there wasn't much downtime. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. the, you know, we, you had 30 minutes to change batteries between the loops, which I felt like that was kind of, you would come back, maybe grab a snack, change your water bottle, um, change the battery. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had any mechanicals or any issues, I think you would really struggle. You would, you would be missing. And yeah. there was riders missing, you know, there were riders missing their uh, stage start times and taking penalties. So it was physical. I think, uh, the, my total time while I was out there was about five and a half hours and, um, you know, over 3000 calories Yeah, was a, was a demand, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard, you know, it was, you, if you, if you didn't, if you weren't on top of your nutrition and your hydration, you would, you would really struggle. I think, I, gonna, I think, I think yeah, we saw that with a few riders that are maybe a bit, uh, inexperienced when it comes to those bigger days. Yeah. I was going to say when we were talking about that before we pressed record, you were mentioning you thought there was some issues going on there. Give us a, a bit of an overview then on how you would approach feeding and hydrating for a day on the bike like that. Just so people have got some kind of like guidance, I guess, because it does make a huge difference, right? Yeah. Massive difference. Yeah. Um, the first thing is starting, like you want to start, you want to be starting the race field, you know, you want to have like, you know, topped up glycogen stores. So, um, yeah, high carbs in the days leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, pretty much every meal you want to be, you want to be eating carbs, your pastas, breads, rices. <clears throat> um, yeah, the whole way through. And if you are exercising as well and training, you want to be, you know, making sure that you're, you're replenishing those stores. Um, morning of the race uh high carbs for sure you know porridge um i think i had porridge and also had uh some eggs on toast so porridge and bread yeah um i can aim for when i'm riding i aim for 60 to 90 grams of carbs every hour from the start as well yeah Yeah, from yeah. the first hour yeah so yeah. start you know, I, I i generally have it through drinks um and 60 to 90 grams of carbs is a lot. Like, you know, 90 grams of carbs is, is about 360 calories every hour. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. My math is probably a bit off, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of calories. And even when you think about that, you know, you know, five threes is, uh, what's that? Is that 15? Yeah. Three fives is 15. So that would be 1500 calories. Uh, and I was saying it was 3000 calorie demand on the day so you've got a huge deficit there's a deficit I mean you will there will be a lot of fat contribution as well Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's having a good understanding for me anyway there's a big fat contribution because my my heart rate is pretty low and the intensity for me was all I was still I would be low below aerobic threshold for a lot of it so a big big proportion of that will be coming from from fat yeah Um, I'm pretty well fat adapted so um, it's understanding that so if you're if you're above your aerobic threshold, which is, I guess, for a lot of people, you know, people might know about zone two, yeah, is a, is a decent indicator of uh, of that, or you know, get aerobic threshold or, or or fat max can often be told. If you're above that, you're actually beginning to really um, go through a lot of carbs mm-hmm. um, and, and and glucose. So, making sure that you 
I guess just having a decent understanding of what the demands are. Like what is the what is the kind of metabolic demand, if you like, what's the energy demand and, and how are you going to feel that? But as a general rule, I would just say like sixty to ninety grams of carbs every hour from the start. Yeah. Should should see right. Um and it's better to take on too much than too little. Yeah. You know, I would say it's uh I don't think there's many people putting weight on at races. So it's uh, <laughs> Or, or you shouldn't really be bothered if you are. Yeah, <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's not the time you, to worry about that. Is yeah, it? you're not. You don't want to be cutting at the race. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it's, you've, 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 if you're if you're still trying to cut, you've you probably missed your chance. So it's uh, yeah, fuel and the demand, um, big time. So it's uh, and and I know a lot of riders will just have water or electrolyte tabs. So many people just ride with electrolyte tabs most of the time, and it's you're just chronically underfueled, mm-hmm. and you will. You you you'll finish the day feeling like you're not fit enough. Yeah. But the reality is, you're just, it's not that you're not fit; it's the fact that you're totally underfueled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think that's probably. I can think of two riders that were struggled at the weekend. Uh, sorry, on Thursday even, in the e-bike race, and they probably think they're that they're not fit enough. But actually, the the reality is that they've they've just not fueled. Yeah, they're in a discipline they're not used to. They're just not not experienced about it. Yeah, yeah. so it's like, uh, yeah, and it was. I mean, it was a big day. Like I say, training stress score. If you're familiar with that, of about two sixty for the day. Um, I say three thousand calories. Uh, I didn't have a power meter on, so there's you know give or take a little bit of that. It's, it's maybe a little bit. There's a there's a bit of discrepancy or a, or a inaccuracy on mm-hmm. that. But um, yeah, big energy day. We kind of been joking like we were we were having dinner at um, the Tracare the other night with, with Santa Cruz, and I was the only one to order dessert, and uh, I kind of came up with this line: of, "Well, it's just that high energy lifestyle I've got, right?" And that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's um, I'm never living that one down. But no, if you it's a you know there's a big energy demand if you're if you're riding, you yeah. Know, it's, uh, and the other thing is, a lot of the time, the fitter you are, the, the actually the more energy you require because your power output's higher. Mm-hmm. So the more the more power you put out, the bigger the energy demand is. So similarly, if you're a bigger rider, your your basal metabolic rate is going to be higher, and your your energy demand is going to be huge. So you know, I've, I'm kind of sixty eight kilograms. Um, a lot of these riders will be seventy, eighty, yeah. even ninety kilograms. You know, some some big big people. Um, you know, if you're ninety kilograms, that's sixty to ninety grams of carbs is probably a uh, not even close to what you need, especially when you're hitting the stages and you if you're if you're putting out big power, um, you know, if you're kind of if you can sprint at fifteen hundred, two thousand watts, that's a lot of kilojoules, which is a lot of energy. So you've you need to be aware of of what you need. Yeah. Interesting. What about the hydration side of things? Because that can often leave people pretty uh jaded towards the end of a day if they get that wrong. Yeah, I think I honestly think it's more energy. Okay. I think I, I think uh Hydration is a big part, but I mean, you can, you know, again, you, you need to know what your sweat rate is, but uh, if you do get dehydrated, it will have a big impact, mm-hmm. but you can actually lose quite a lot of hydration with it and actually still be relatively well hydrated. But as a general rule, again, 500 mils an hour, yeah, like 300 to 500 mils of fluid an hour. Okay. Make sure you've got plenty of salts in there too. So yeah, um, yeah, you can, a lot of these, if you have a high energy, drink um powder like a mix powder that you would use in your bottles 
um, they tend to have electrolytes in there too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, if you're just going on a, you know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people get cramp and they they've had the electrolyte tabs in their bottles and they go, oh, I had the electrolytes, but I really end up cramping still. I need more salts, but it's actually probably more the fact that they've just totally depleted their carbs. Okay. And are totally gassed. So yeah. Um. And again, it's like that that underfueling and. Underfueling and overtraining are really closely linked. If you become carb depleted, uh, you, the amount of fatigue that you you know, you're just not recovering as well. So it's uh, it's a it's a dangerous game, you know. To again, it's something that I was you know guilty of. I guess as a rider, was I was always. I mean, I've heard riders talk about this recently, but like I was a, a climber in Edinburgh, I'm like uh-huh. quite wiry, I'm quite light. And I would always look to the metric that I would always look to to improve my performance was to lose more weight. Okay, yeah. And I always be like, oh, if I can just lose that little bit, I'll be, um, I'll be able. To, you know, that's you know, say I'm losing thirty seconds a lap to the winner. Yeah, at a race, I'd be like, well, if I can just find that thirty seconds on the climbs, that's where I can find it. We're actually. I should have been fueling more and actually probably putting my weight on. Yeah. And I'm heavier now than I was when I competed before and I'm co- pretty confident that I'm faster than I've ever been in an XE race. Uh-huh. Um, and again, it's that's part of it. Like So the, the overtraining thing, underfueling, these kind of really quite unhealthy habits um, that are very common in sport uh, is something that you want to want to be aware of because yeah. it's... Yeah, it can be pretty dangerous. So and you, also, if you you have a really common, a really common marker for um, overtraining, is uh, is how your mood changes uh-huh. and how you feel. So and and pretty key uh, markers for that are depression and anxiety. Yeah, if, you, if you're more depressed and more anxious than normal, there's a decent chance that you're you're not sleeping well enough and you're not feeling well enough. You're you're yeah, again it's. You're you're not as healthy as you could be. Yeah, for sure. Interesting yeah. stuff. But yeah, I, again, go back to the goal. The simple uh, information, I guess, is start drinking from the start. Yeah. If you're aiming for three hundred to five hundred milliliters an hour. Yeah. And if you've got carb mix in that, you're probably doing a pretty good job of it. Okay. And again, like they're a lot more common and on the. And, and a lot easier to buy these days, but high carbs that come from a mix of uh, like multidextrin and fructose. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of brands that you might have heard of would be like OTEs, Super Carbs, yeah. Secret Training's Big Energy, yeah. Science and Sports Beta Fuel, Morton is another one, Morton mm-hmm. to a high carb. So, all all the pro bike riders, like road pros, XE pros, marathon riders are all pretty hot on this kind of stuff. Yeah, because that enables your gut wall basically to absorb as much of that carbs as possible. Yeah, you can actually, yeah, yeah, it's because uh, it's coming in from two sources, you can, you, yeah, you can absorb. Yeah. You can absorb it and, and use it. All right. Good stuff, man. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we've got our final four questions that we've asked uh, oh, yeah. a lot of people. So we'll hit up those. Yeah. The first one is if our listeners had £150 to spend to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go spend it on? So, yeah, I've, I'm probably going to be the same as everyone in here and just get, you know, get a coaching session uh-huh. on the bike, like a technical coaching session. Um, 
you can I would say you could do it with me, but I'm not coaching at the moment. So with Scott or Mark, who work, yeah. work for me um, at Wardell Cycle Coaching, uh, yeah. Dirt School also, very, very good still. Yeah. Um, even though even though I don't work there anymore, <laughs> like I said, I still feel very much a part of the Dirt School family, the Tweed Valley Bikes family. So it's, uh, yeah, technical. There's a lot of fantastic coaches out there. Okay. Um, I guess it would be a case of, of, of thinking about what you're, what you're looking for. The other thing is um, fitness coaching. Mm-hmm. Um you know, with a qualified coach because a lot of the time it's actually simplifying things that you do yeah and learning good uh good quality principles um but yeah if i'm gonna 150 pounds spend it on coaching all right sounds good and we'll put links to to the uh the websites that you mentioned <coughs> yeah yeah in the show i mean, notes I mean the well. coaching could be anything it could be nutrition it could be uh, psychology it could be technical coaching it could be fitness but coaching would be the yeah. would be the umbrella I'd right. be under. Sounds good. Second question, if you could wind the clock back and sit with yourself, age 16, what advice would you give him? Uh, trust the process and uh, value consistency uh-huh. um, rather than uh, short spells of intensity Okay. and focus. So, so really trust the process and think about the long game. Yeah, rather than trying to build up overnight kind of thing. Yeah, not instead of thinking about overreaching to push to the next level, think about just understand that it's going to take years, you know, yeah. and it's going to take years of doing um, the right things consistently yeah. and almost set, you know, plan for that. So, like I say, in the past I would do, you know, I should have, in hindsight, should have continued to work part-time jobs should have continued to value consistency yeah, and just think about what I'm doing each day rather than I'm going to go on a training camp in Spain for two weeks and I'm going to do uh, 60 hours of bike riding while I'm there yeah, and then come back with glandular fever <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's like go, yeah, trust the process and, and you know, think about uh, consistency. Yeah. All right. Like it. That's a good one. That's, that's advice I give to everyone these days. So I would definitely want to yeah. give it to myself back then. That's solid. If you can have some coaching yourself, who would it be from and what would you want to learn from them? I'm going to have to look up this guy's name again. But um, do you follow Squat University? I don't, but I've heard of it. Ben Planger has mentioned it before. Yeah. I have to pull up this guy. I know. As as usual, I know everyone by their Instagram handle rather than <laughs> yeah. their actual name. Doctor Aaron Horshig. Mm-hmm. I've probably pronounced that terribly, but um, yeah, he's a strength and conditioning coach, um, and <laughs> super, super uh, well informed and, and knowledgeable person okay. when it comes to strength training. So, yeah. I think that would be be who I would like a a strength training session or a training session with, um, because it's, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty good and my, my knowledge of strength training is pretty good. And again, like consistency and, um, doing basic things. Well, I think is probably a big, big, uh, thing that I value. Um, but yeah, I think that would be my session. I would go to with him because I think he would be able to teach me tons it's something that I've, I feel like I've got some headroom with. Yeah. Nice. Good um, stuff. Like it. Final one. If you could, uh, oh, no, sorry. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? 
the biggest one now is sleep, without a doubt. And do you have any kind of rituals around that? Like, do you do things to promote the best quality of sleep that you can, or is it just a certain amount of hours you give yourself? Right? Yeah, I try to. I'm I'm much better when I'm at home, and also I'm I'm much better when when I'm at home with Katie because because mm-hmm. she's much better at it than me. <laughs> um, it's uh yeah. I mean, I shoot for that kind of seven to eight hours. Yeah. Um, I think understanding your kind of circadian rhythm as well and trying to stick to that routine. Mm. So trying to having like a bed time and awake time. Um, I don't use like blue light glasses or anything like that. Uh, but again, like, yeah, shutting down screens and um, yeah. trying to have a routine that you follow um, to, again, to, 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 aspire to have consistent regular sleep mm-hmm. is a big one. I find that really, I find when I'm, I really find when I'm traveling or I go new places, it really disturbs my routines. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's quite difficult to, to manage that routine when you are traveling a lot. Things like my diet or I mean, same diets, it makes it sound a bit over the top, but just the things that I eat and the times that I eat always get thrown off when I'm yeah. traveling places and, um, so yeah, just being at home and, and having that consistent sleep routine and, and trying to sleep well, it's not something that it, it's a, it's something I wish people would tell me more often or, or, or sooner was it actually to sleep well takes a lot of effort. Um, to do anything takes a lot of effort, like to rest well takes effort. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it, it kind of never goes away as well. Like you always have to apply that effort to, uh, to things. So it's, um. Yeah, I would say sleep is a, a big one. And um, yes, the difference in, again, your mood, your energy levels when you when you slept well compared to when you're not sleeping well is uh, is huge. For sure. So yeah, in terms of uh, staying healthy, physically and mentally, I think sleep is a, is a big, big, uh, big thing that's often overlooked. And uh, kind of like uh, Kilmurray's... Um, I'm sure Kamari never came up with it, or maybe he did, but like the, your sleep needs a better marketing department. (laughs) You know, everyone's like, oh, well, I'm just going to have that massage gun or I'm going to put the flipping Normatec boots on and then I'm going to, you know, I feel tired in the morning, so I'm going to have some caffeine and, oh, I'm going to take a sleep, you know, sleep, sleep aid before I go to bed to, to to help me sleep or, you know, just, just always like, I don't know, burn the candle at both ends. It's like actually sleep, you know, sleep is so, like there just isn't any anything better. Yeah, there's no substitute. No, exactly. Yeah, you can't. Uh, yeah, you can't. Uh, you can't skip it. So it's uh, and it's so dull and boring to say that, but it's uh, especially as mountain bikers, where it's like we want to be sending it full send and living that rad lifestyle. But unfortunately, sleep is going to be a big, big part of it, and it will keep you. Uh, it'll improve your riding and, and keep you uh, keep you healthy. For sure, man. Well, it's been super, super interesting finding out your backstory and what you've been up to. If people want to keep up with your adventures and challenges over the future years, where's the best place for them to, to head? So, yeah, my, my personal accounts are all Rab Wardell. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I've even got a YouTube channel now, but I, I don't take it particularly seriously. But, um, yeah, Instagram, I would say, is probably the main place. Um, and for this year's videos and previous videos it's the the wahoo 
okay. YouTube channel, nice uh, Wahoo channels will uh, will have old enough to know better and the West End Way film. If you've not seen that one, please go check it out. Good stuff. I'll stick some links in the show notes and uh, yeah, thanks, man. It's been really interesting. I wish you all the best for the European marathon champs. Hope that goes well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you around. Thank you very much. Awesome. Cheers, man. Cheers. All right, that's it for this episode with Rab. It was something a little bit different from the norm and I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you'd like to find out more about Rab's return to competition, you can find his Old Enough to Know Better video series over on Wahoo's YouTube channel. If you want to get your training on track, then Wahoo have got you covered with heart rate monitors, bike computers, trainers, and your one-stop shop, the Element Rival GPS watch over at wahoofitness.com. Also, here's a few other links that might be useful to you. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some merch. And forward slash EP if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We'll have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride.